Welcome to the Kesset Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us and hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you'd like to find out more about Kesset, you can head to kessetchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Good morning. Welcome to Kesset Church. If you're new, I want to thank you for being here. My name's Danny. I am one of the pastors here at Kesset. Uh, you're in a series right now called The Quickening, and every symbol on the back wall, minus the TV that's not working, uh, is, is a, a symbol that represents the talk we're going to have. And so this week's symbol is the book because we're going to talk about the quickenings that happen within your story and, and how God unfolds those. And I couldn't think of a better person to come and share this with us uh, than the man I sit with every Tuesday morning, Byron Kaler. Uh, a lot of you know over the last few years that I've been on a journey toward emotional health, that uh, I, I felt that, that I had done as much as I could do by myself. And so uh, we started sharing uh, with the church that I was in therapy, and a lot of people were like, what? Our pastor's in therapy? Like, he's supposed to be, he's supposed to be normal. What, what's, what's going on? And so uh, I think over the last few years, we've, this has become our new normal. It has become something that we are honest about that we are people who need help, that we are people who need to sometimes realign the things within our stories and see how God is working within those things in order to be better humans, to be better husbands, to be better fathers, mothers, to be better children of God. And so Byron has been my guide in that process. Uh, he is uh, incredibly wise, and I, I don't say that to just, to just build a better platform. I say that because many times Byron says something and then he pauses and that's when you're supposed to let what he said soak in. If you just like skip past it, you'll miss it, and then you'll have to rewatch the whole message again online. So I just want to encourage you that as Byron comes to share with us, that you really do your best to, to process your own story a little bit, to sit inside the things that he's sharing about and listen to how they impact you because there's a lot of beauty and there's a whole lot of spiritual wisdom uh, within the words that he says, and uh, I trust him. And he's important to me. And so I'm excited that he's here to share with you guys today. Okay? Okay. Would you please welcome my friend, Byron Kaler. I must confess to you as we start this morning that it's very strange to be introduced as somebody's therapist. Um, when you live your life confidentially all the time, like nobody wants to admit they even know me, let alone uh, that I uh, have been uh, helpful to them. Good morning, Kesset. It's good to be um, here with you again. I'm excited about the opportunity to share in this quickening series that you're doing. Uh, it's a topic that is um, close to my heart. Quickenings are those moments where we hear and respond to God in ways that change us, that shape us, that help us become uh, more transformed. I witnessed my first miracle when I was 13 years old, a quickening, if you will. This is going to be hard for you to believe, but I mean, seeing the polished and sophisticated man before you today, okay? But when I was young, um, I had a reputation for being mischievous. So my mother, quite concerned as she should have been 
about uh, me maybe entering into a life of crime. Um, she made a quiet and special arrangement with the pastor of the church where we attended for me to be a custodian or janitor at the church. I think in the hopes that if you touched holy objects frequently enough, it'd be kind of like salvation by osmosis, you know, kind of a thing. <clears throat> what she didn't anticipate was um, me getting to know the pastor of our church in the manner that I did. Reverend Kelly, or we'll call him Mr. Kelly, or Willie if you're very familiar with him, Mr. Kelly had um, three daughters, no sons, and a 500cc motorcycle. And I lived, fortunately, within about three blocks of his house. So Saturday mornings, he would swing by in his three-piece suit with a white helmet and a little red cross on the back and pick me up. And then um, after, and we'd go down to the church building, and then after he would make his church calls in his fancy attire, he would swing back by and pick me up and take me home after I had done the cleaning. And so I got to ride the motorcycle both on the way to church building as well as on the way back. It's a sunny Saturday afternoon, hot and humid in Illinois, and I have finished my cleaning at the church, and it is time for one of the exciting moments of my day to get the ride home with um, Mr. Kelly. We pull into his driveway, and there is his five-year-old daughter, Lisa, um, playing in the front yard in her swimming suit. Since it's hot, she's going to be running through the sprinkler or at least spraying the hose on herself. And she has turned the hose, the water on at the hose bib, you know, where it comes out of the house. But on the end of the hose, there is an old brass nozzle that you turn to open up. Some of you older folks are shaking your heads like you remember those, okay? And so she has turned the water on. It's filled the hose to bursting, okay, kind of, and it's all shut off in the end. And when we pull into the driveway, she is shaking the hose, trying to see what's wrong. As we shut off the motorcycle and um, Mr. Kelly heads for her in the front lawn, he's snickering. What's wrong, sweetheart? He says, she says, Dad, I turned the water on, but I, I think maybe everybody else already used it up, okay? <laughs> I can't get anything to come out. So he laughs and continues his approach until he is right, literally, beginning to lean over her. When, at that moment, Lisa decided that she would try one last thing, okay? And so instead of pulling on the nozzle or shaking it, she decided to turn it. And as she did, the hose exploded, okay? It, the water pressure ripped it out of her hands, and the hose began to kind of, you know that thing? It began to circle. As Willie danced, which was against our religion, okay, in an effort to avoid the water, to no avail. It sprayed him every time it came back around until he was dripping from the top of his head to the bottom of his shoes. 
I remember like yesterday what I did next. I remember crouching down behind the motorcycle strategically to keep the motorcycle between me and what was happening in the front yard because everything in my upbringing to that point in time, everything in my home told me what was going to happen next. Are you with me? And I didn't want to be that close to the action. I wanted to be safe behind some barrier or obstacle. What I saw next changed my life. As the hose whipped around one more time, Mr. Kelly stomped his foot down on it and pinned it between the sod and his foot. He leaned over, picked up the hose, shut off the water, leaned over Lisa, smiled, and said, See, sweetheart? Never, never give up. There won't be anything that you can't do. In that moment, a question was asked to me. Byron, who do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be like? And I can remember answering that question and saying to myself, Byron, you're going to grow up and try to become that man. I'm pretty sure this morning that I would not be up here in front of you in this room, in this play, and in this role had that quickening or miracle never happened. I had nowhere to put what I observed in context because my life hadn't really prepared me for that. Quickenings all seem to have something in common. They seem to follow a particular pattern that I want to talk with you about this morning in the hope that it opens a door for God to capture your attention and invite you into more quickenings of your own. Is a quickening something that you desire and hope for this morning? That God grabs your attention and invites you into somewhere deeper with him? The quickenings, quickenings that's a hard word, by the way, the quickenings that I'm most familiar with have three distinct components or elements which all happen in a fairly predictable manner. There is a crisis or an event that takes place like the hose in the front lawn. There's a question or invitation that gets made and then there's a process of change or recovery that follows. If you think about quickenings in the Bible, I think 
that you'll see those elements over and over again. King David, do you remember him and that little problem with the woman on the roof? Okay, which could qualify as a crisis to his throne. And then there's the question by that nice man, Nathan. And then there's a process of recovery, like Psalms. So whether it's David and Bathsheba, or whether it's Daniel in the fiery furnace, a crisis, or whether it's Joseph and his brothers who throw him into a well, and the questions that he asks later on of Benjamin and others, or whether it's the Good Samaritan story. They begin with a crisis. There's a question that gets asked, or an invitation that gets made, and then a process that follows. The first element, then, of a quickening is the crisis. There is some precipitating crisis that draws our attention. I think Danny last week talked about Noah, right? And that small little crisis of the worldwide flood. Okay, that, and then the follow-up behind that with the dove and on. God uses crisis, I'm convinced, to catch our attention and to challenge us to evaluate our lives and our circumstances. Crisis reminds us of what's important. It reprioritizes for us. It clarifies our vision, our priorities, and our values. Years ago, when I was a young man, I had the opportunity to take a two-week vacation. Since I was going to be away from home, uh, I invited a friend, Paul, to come in and do some things around my house. Um, mow the front yard, keep the landscaping up, um, mow the backyard, some of those kinds of things. So Paul came over while I was gone and uh, did the front lawn and uh, mowed the back lawn cleaned up my house, drug the Christmas tree from the backyard out to the front where it could be picked up. July, it's about time to do that. <laughs> One of the rules in our home, um, when we bought the home, it had very light blue carpet uh, in the living room and uh, the dining room. So one of the rules in our family and friends were that you never brought food into the dining room. It's kind of odd. But I didn't want to get the carpet stained, and so, you know, we would just eat over the sink or something like that. So Paul, being a friend of the family, knew this rule, that the blue carpet had to be, you know, spared at any expense. Well, Paul, while he's working in the backyard and finishes up out there, um, runs across the patio and up the stairs and into the dining room area. Unfortunately, Paul had forgotten that he had already closed the sliding glass door. So as he dashes up the porch stairs and heads into the dining room, uh, he explodes, he crashes through the sliding glass door. It's plate glass, untempered because it was an older home. And so as the window explodes, you can just imagine 
uh, he slices his arm deeply um, on his right arm, right down into the muscle. He's wandering around the backyard holding his arm kind of in a state of shock when one of my neighbors sees him, calls 911, the ambulance comes, gets him, they take him to the hospital, he's in ER. He asks the ER nurse to give me a call and let me know while I'm on vacation uh, that there's been an accident. So I'm on vacation, the phone rings, I answer it, it's the nurse in the ER and she says, Paul's here, we want you to know there's been an accident in your home, just the kind of thing you want to hear on your vacation. And um, she goes on to describe that uh, he ran through the plate glass door and that they are working now to see what they can do uh, to suture him up and uh, save his function in his arm and all of those things. She's literally in the ER talking to me on the phone while they are working on Paul. So as she's talking to me, I can hear Paul mumbling in the background. I can't tell what he's saying, but I can hear his voice. She says, just a moment, just a moment. She listens, and then she comes back to the phone, and she says, um, Paul wants you to know you, you are sharper than the 830 group. <laughs> wow. <laughs> she says, Paul wants you to know, okay, that he's going to be okay, and he did not bleed on the carpet. Now, I have to ask you, any guess what that ER nurse thinks of me? Okay? Here the guy is, we don't know if his arm's going to work again or not, but she's, you know, hearing him be most concerned about that carpet. Can I say to you, honestly and genuinely, in that moment, his arm was most important to me, okay? Just so that we're clear that the carpet was no big deal now all of a sudden because the crisis had revealed what was most important. Do you see that? Crises have a way of doing that for us. God uses the pain in our stories, the difficult seasons in our lives, as invitations to us to wake up and quicken us. Pain is a terrible, terrible thing to waste because it's so uncomfortable. We want to get everything from it that we possibly can. I have a friend now who has recently been diagnosed with breast cancer. She's scared, as you can understand. As I sat and talked with her, I encourage her to not waste this season and this experience. Instead of telling her it was going to be okay and everything was going to turn out all right, which I really don't know. What was most important to me was that she understand that in these dark seasons, we have an opportunity to experience God in a rare and unique way. I'm pretty convinced, probably not folks like you, but other folks who should have been here, 
okay? <laughs> that the God that we want is a God who protects us from pain. When in fact the God that we got is a God who doesn't make us walk through it alone. He never wastes it in our lives, and if we allow ourselves, he will use it to quicken us. That doesn't make the pain any easier, but it does make it more relevant and important. Even Jesus wanted that Father God when he prays in the garden, let this cup pass from me. Like, I don't want to do this. This sounds really painful. And yet he got the same Father God response that you and I get. I won't leave you in the darkness. I won't leave you in the tomb. I won't leave you in the grave. I'm going to be with you in that place. And he does. God shapes his people most in the wilderness of our experiences. If we listen and pay attention. The first element then of a quickening is the crisis. Now, just for clarity's sake, some of you are thinking because you want a quickening, I need to find a crisis. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Some of you have already prayed, Lord, please bring more crises. <laughs> so let me comfort you with this. There are already plenty of crises in this room. From where you've been, from what you've already experienced, the crises are there, my friends. What we do with them is what makes the difference. So the second element of a quickening is an invitation or question. I have a friend who, um, looking back on his quickening in his life, says this. I wouldn't wish this on me or anyone else, but I also wouldn't trade it for anything in my life. The crisis is an invitation to explore deeper, open ourselves. Sometimes it's a friend who asks the question, sometimes God himself does, sometimes there's simply a subtle invitation to listen and to pay attention. That may be happening for some of you this morning, right now. Danny mentioned his therapist. I also had a therapist, a number of them. And uh, one morning, I uh, share a building with uh, the therapist that I saw. So we'd pass sometimes early in the morning as we headed to um, do our work with folks. And I remember one morning in the kitchen area, um, getting ready to see our clients, saying this to Jim, my therapist. 
Well, let's let the day begin. Let's change the world, which was my hope in seeing people and helping them work on their stories. And I remember in another quickening moment, because Jim was probably one of the more spiritual people I've ever had the privilege of spending time with, smiling at me and saying, yeah, let's do that, Byron, but let's start first with us. <laughs> you had one of those moments where it's like, oh, that hurt just a tad, okay? Stung just a little. So this second element is this invitation, this question, this opportunity. We must learn to be paying attention to the Spirit, listening to Him. He invites us to participate with Him in our own change. It's a holy invitation. We must remain attuned to God and not view our crises as scary and dangerous or the darkness as an annoyance, but rather an invitation to grow, to deepen. The third element generally involves some kind of a process. There's the crisis, there's some invitation that's given, and then there's a process involved. The process, this is, this is the bad news, is not immediate. It's not comfortable, it's not quick, it's not painless. Most of the processes require conviction, commitment, surrender, vulnerability. There is no fiery furnace without the fire. <laughs> it's just not how it works. It's in the fire that we are refined. And I understand that that's a difficult concept for us today. We live in a microwave culture, and this is a crock-pot process. It takes time. Transformations are seldom easy or quick. One of the most powerful examples of a quickening that I know is found in Luke chapter 24. We're going to look for just a few minutes at that this morning. And I want you to look for these three elements. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to kind of read along, or you can read on the slide up there. Uh, sometimes I make things up, so I watch carefully. The, uh, the crisis that's occurred is that there has been a death of a Messiah. The loss of a Savior. People were looking for and expecting God to show up in a particular way to rescue them from the Romans and the slavery that they experienced there. There was a crisis of faith that followed when Jesus dies. Sometimes everything we believe can sometimes get called into question. We face something we never faced before. We witness something that's novel. We feel overwhelmed or impressed. Chapter 24 of Luke is the resurrection story that you're familiar with. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women 
took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They go to the tomb, they find a couple shiny people, angels, and the shiny people remind them that Jesus predicted this, that he said that he would be raised from the dead. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And the women remembered these words. So they go back and they tell the eleven, the apostles, and here's what the apostles' response is. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Now I could preach a whole sermon on that, ladies. Okay? But I won't because I'd like to come back. In the midst of this crisis is an invitation that is extended to the apostles. Do you see it? And it is out-of-handedly dismissed. Now, we could debate whether that's because of who brought the message to them, or their stubbornness or their fear. It says that Peter wondered, he wondered about these things, but there was no conviction. Think about what they had lost for a moment. The disciples had given up their lives. They had followed Jesus for three years. They left families, jobs, careers like. All of that's gone. All of that's lost now. In the moment where they are dismissing God's invitation to go somewhere deeper. If the story ended there, we wouldn't be here. We just wouldn't be gathered. There's an invitation for a quickening, and it's passed on. Now, there are a number of reasons that we dismiss invitations. Sometimes it's who delivers them. Sometimes it's where we are in our lives. Sometimes it's how we expect God is going to work. Well, God doesn't work that way. It's not what we expected or planned for. It doesn't make sense to us, like with the apostles. It's fear of what it may cost us, fear of the unknown or our own resistance. Whatever the reason, God is offering an invitation to go to a deeper place with him. That would be an invitation that we would not want to miss. Fortunately, the story does not end there. Okay? Verse 13 now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking as they, with each other uh, about everything that had happened, as they happened in Jerusalem, the crucifixion, all of that. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Can I just say that God sneaks up on us. He's kind of unscrupulous like that. He wants to catch our attention, but he'll do that in subtle ways. Here, he keeps himself from being seen or at least recognized. And the story continues. 
we often see darkness as an annoyance. God sees it as an opportunity. Here's what happens next. Now wait for it, because this is going to be stage two of the quickening. The crisis has already occurred. Then he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk alone? The question. Now it goes on to say, one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and you do not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus, this is my favorite verse, Jesus says, what things? How sweet is that? The question that we get asked, are you paying attention? Now what's ironic before we go on in the passage here, what's ironic about that is that who knows what happened in Jerusalem? Clearly, not very many people. In fact, the person that they're talking to is the only person who knows what happened in Jerusalem over the last few days. But they're going to go on and explain it to God. Okay? They're going to explain it to Jesus. Oh yeah, here's what happened. It's very kind of them. And so um, as they walk along, they try to ask him to stay. And, um, and then the third portion of this quickening occurs. So we've had the crisis, the questions, and now the process gets introduced. Jesus says, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did you not know that Christ had to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? This is a wonderful example of therapy. It sounds a little rude to us. Trust me, I'm much kinder to Danny, even though he doesn't maybe at times think so. But what Jesus does is he goes on to explain the scriptures, beginning with the prophets, and then he goes through. He's describing the process by which folks are going to grow. The process begins, the conversation on the Emmaus Road opens their eyes, their hearts are burning. If we allow him, God will open our eyes in the midst of the pain in our stories and allow us to see him and to see where he was, how he moved, and what he wants to do in our stories as we continue to grow. But our eyes have to be opened and our hearts willing and available. The passage closes with their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight and then they return once again, these two guys, to the apostles and they share with them, it is true, the Lord has in fact risen and they recognized Jesus when he broke the bread. It's a rare thing for people to talk about their um, quickenings when they're of a personal nature. But you have an extra special treat this morning in that we have someone from your own community here who's willing to come and share some with you in a really personal way 
about what that quickening looked like and something about their transformation. So if you would, if you would um, welcome Kelly, a friend of mine, um, to share with you. Thank you. Good morning, Kessid. <clears throat> My name is Kelly Backstrom, and um, um, it's an honor to be able to be here and share part of my story. Um, my wife, Samantha, and I and our two-year-old daughter, Olive, have been attending Kessid since about August or so, and in that time range, um, we were pastoring a little church, a great little church we were part of, and decided to step aside from that to come here and be a part of what God's doing at Kessid and just be ministered to. Um, Danny and I had met a little bit from actually going to the same therapist on the same Tuesday mornings. <laughs> and in confidentiality, we'd always give that little quick head nod without recognizing who the person is, though we knew each other. And then it became a double head nod, and one time we actually started to talk and got to know each other. A big part of us coming to Kessid for my family was, as I got to know Danny and then his wife Erin, realizing how significant... Um, their desire to be a part of a church that addresses both emotional health and spiritual health. And, and a lot of you may not know this, but that's a really rare thing in the church world to really yeah. go after the emotional health as much as you do the spiritual health. And that's so important for my wife and I and what we were going through and in the last three and a half years of my therapy that um, I wanted to be a part of something like that. So we decided even leaving this great church we were part of was more important to be here and to be a part of what God's doing here. As a former pastor for almost 20 years, I find myself in an interesting place in my spiritual and emotional life today. Um, in week one of this series, Danny started out the series talking about being unmade. And that was a, a tough <laughs> message to receive, even for me who's been through the process of being unmade. Or maybe of, maybe of being made, unmade, and then remade, <laughs> because it's a continual process. And for me, it has been, and I'm in that process today. Um, my life before Christ was very broken, hopeless, and in, I was a very destructive place in my life. I was 17 years old when I received Christ in my life, um, and I had already lived through some very, very difficult, rough years as a teenager. But when Christ came into my life, everything changed immediately, so I thought. <laughs> I mean, it did, uh, but yet... I was uh, so relieved that I would not have to go through the process. <laughs> I could just do this new thing of accepting Christ in my life and forget about everything I've been through. My favorite verse from that time and through much of my life as an adult was 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. And for me, I grabbed onto that and I held onto it with so much because my life was now amazing in so many ways. I could walk away from all the baggage I had carried of guilt and failure and sin and, and uh, hopelessness and become a Christ follower. I suddenly had a new start and I could just pretend like everything else that had happened never happened in my life. Now, at that point in my life, when I became a Christ follower, I was in a youth detention facility which is a jail for teenagers. And um, while I was there in, in that room, I accepted Christ in my life. And immediately I felt like the need to, to change and do something different. And I don't know if you've ever been there before, but people like to write on walls there and they don't write very nice things. 
And so I literally took an eraser and started erasing all the bad words on my walls. And then if I couldn't erase it, I crossed it out. And uh, immediately there was a change in me, and immediately I just turned and never looked back. And there's a problem. It's what I call Kelly 1.0, if you will. And there's a problem with that in my life, come to find out many years later. Although this verse and the positive influences around me allowed me to embrace my new life, I had some serious emotional issues that remained from my past trauma practically all the way back to my birth. And being a new creation gave me permission to embrace a new life, which was awesome and is awesome, but it also enabled me to forget everything about my old life that had led me to that place. There was a reason I was in that detention facility. There was a reason I was so broken and desperate and hurting. And I just turned from that and embraced this new life, which was beautiful, and it is beautiful, but I still had left all the work inside that needed to be done behind. So what I quickly learned to do was to try and focus on the new life and run from those pains and hurts and guilt of my old life. And it's this battle I experienced early on of trying to outrun my past, and every time it seemed like it was getting closer and closer, I thought that the older I got, the easier it would get to escape it, but it was actually quite the opposite. The older I got, the more mature I got spiritually, the more I realized it was getting closer, and I had to eventually deal with this. Another verse that I held on to um, at that time that, that maybe enabled me to, to do some of this was Philippians 3, 13, and 14. It's a great scripture, and there's a great truth behind it um, when it's applied correctly, but for me... It says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward for what lies ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. These two verses gave me hope that I don't have to ever deal with my brokenness and hurt and the things I'd been through in my life. I could just leave that trauma and tattered emotional life behind. And I now know that my subconscious literally had adopted these two scriptures as excuses to never look back to what was a part of my life before that. I also grabbed on to verse 14, and it became a big part of who I was at that time. Verse 14 says, I press on towards the goal for the prize. I became very performance-oriented. I held on to that prize. It was very significant because, for me, this gave me a license to create my entire self-worth around the good that I could do for God's kingdom and helping other people. And let me tell you, I went to town on building up prizes and rewards for God's kingdom and at the cost of everything else and everyone else in my life. It sounded really great, and it probably does to, to make a difference in God's kingdom, and it is, but not when your motivation is for your own self-worth and to somehow create a, a purpose in my life that was missing. I became focused on helping people and changing the world as an escape from my lack of self-worth, my guilt, and my emotional brokenness. But this constantly striving for results and running from my past kept getting heavier and heavier for myself and all the people around me. And that led me to what I call the crisis of Kelly 2.0. Recently, I read a book that helped me to put my crisis in perspective, if you will. Here's a few quotes I want to give you that, that I've applied to this for my sake. 
The author said the bottom line of the gospel is that most of us have to hit some kind of bottom before we can even start the real spiritual journey. You see, I didn't want to go through the process. I just wanted this new life, and it was awesome, but there was a process I was avoiding of confronting my past. He said, before the truth sets you free, it tends to make you miserable. <laughs> I feel like a salesman. That sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> Lastly, he said, we grow spiritually much more by doing it wrong than by doing it right. He said, that might just be the central message of how spiritual growth happens, yet nothing in us wants to believe it. <laughs> That was so true for me. I hit a series of crises in my life that not only rocked my world, but they changed through how I went through my life. Many, many of the people I loved no longer wanted anything to do with me. I found that my need to achieve was destroying good people who loved God and wanted good things to happen. I also discovered those people um, didn't depend on their achievements for their happiness or self-worth in the way that I did. And these people often had a difficult time telling me how I was making them feel. My drive for the prize and the self-worth that it provided for me was not enough to cover up the growing discontent I was feeling and the hurt I was inflicting on others. Unfortunately, it was a very painful time for me and some of the people that were close to me. And I think I needed that crisis in my life, though, to get my attention and to help me see, even though I was sincere in my desire to do good, my trauma from my life was controlling me and hurting people around me. A friend of mine asked, I, I went to a friend of mine, I asked her advice on how to get through this devastating circumstance I was experiencing. And I'll never forget her response. She said, let it wreck you. I thought that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but she went on to say, unless you let this break you down to your core, you're wasting your time. You need to find out what part you had in these circumstances and why it's affecting you the way it is. And that began to sink into my mind. And as much as Kelly 2.0 was an improvement from Kelly 1.0, uh, God was using it to accomplish much more important things in my life. And the bottom line, I, had never, I still had never dealt with the past pain that subconsciously was still ruling my life and my emotions. I was so focused on the pain and what I was going through and how I felt I was being mistreated by other people. And this was especially true regarding where I got my self-worth, or more specifically, where I lost my self-worth. And as life and these difficulties pressed in on me, I found myself growing more and more angry. I was getting angry with the, and defensive with people around me that I was serving and that I cared for and cared for me. I was focused on how they were disappointing me and how I thought they were hurting me and my perceptions of their wrongs against me. But God kept clearly telling me something. He kept saying, Kelly, let's not look at them and what they're doing wrong. Let's go deeper inside of you. Inside of your subconscious, if you will, to what really drives you and what you're truly afraid of inside that's causing you all this anger. Well, my first response wasn't yes. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it, it, it scared me. It was some scary things. Inside, I kept yelling, I'm a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. Because I didn't want to go there. I'd spent my life trying to run from my past. Why would I want to embrace it now? And it was like God kept telling me so clearly, no, Kelly, trust me. Let's go deeper. Let's stay down longer. And let's find out why you're reacting the way you are. <clears throat> I think the clincher for me, speaking of those questions, <laughs> um, was when my fiance at the time asked me why I was so angry at the people who I felt 
had mistreated me and um, were being unfair. She said, if you're certain they're wrong, then why is it affecting you so strongly? And then she asked me these two questions. The first question she asked me, she says, do you think God loves you? Well, I've been a pastor for 20 years. I'm like, yeah, that's a good question. And I knew the answer to that in my heart because um, that's something I had, I had resolved many years ago. Yes, I knew that God loved me just the way I was, who I was. Even in my darkest secrets, God knew me and loved me. And, and I, I felt confident in that. I could tell you that God loved me and there was nothing I could do to cause God to love me more. And there was nothing I could do that would ever cause God to love me less. So easy peasy. Thanks for asking. Yes, God loves me. But then she asked me the second question, and this was like a left hook. <laughs> she said, do you love you? Now, before you answer that, I had taught on that also, self-love. But this time I said, just a minute, I can't answer that yet. Let me, let me consider that. And I went in the other room, literally stopped the conversation, went in the other room, and within a few minutes I realized my problem. I could not say that I loved me the way God loves me without my accomplishments, without the things I could do to provide worth and value. I could not say that I loved Kelly and there was nothing I could do that could cause me to love Kelly more and there was nothing I could do that would cause me to love me less. My love for myself was very conditional upon how I was performing that day, that minute, that hour. Well, um, it was then, through that, I made the commitment to enter into this process, <laughs> to dig deeper and to stay down as long as it took to find the same kind of love for myself that God had for me and that hopefully somehow that would allow me to love others in a better way also. And I can tell you the evolution from Kelly 2.0 to Kelly 3.0 has been the slowest and most difficult process I've ever been through. <laughs> I began the process three and a half years ago weekly therapy journey of peeling back my life story by story so that I could become aware of how I had in many cases been rehearsing what I had learned from the earliest days of my life through many traumas I'd experienced. Some people say it's like peeling an onion and to me that doesn't give it true justice because it was more like peeling the onion skin. <laughs> it was such a thin layer by thin layer to peel back the, the, the things I had been through, the things in my life that can controlled my emotions, my actions, my reactions. Um, but I can tell you this, <laughs> the transformation has been nothing short of amazing. It has allowed me to embrace the pain in my story and the effects it had in all of my life. Up to that point in my life, my self-worth was tied to what I could accomplish and what you thought of me. It was tied to um, me being right in every circumstances because if I was ever wrong, it meant I had no value. It was tied to if people were critical of me or disapproved of something I did, it would devastate me and cause me to have to find a way to do something bigger and better to make up for my lack of self-worth. I don't know if Kelly 3.0 is one of 99. <laughs> I don't know what level it's at. I know that I'm not arrived and I know I have a long ways to go. But if you ask me today, Kelly, do you love Kelly? I can tell you I'm learning to love Kelly. And that is different. I'm learning to embrace each part of my story, the pain, the hurts, and even my failures and mistakes that God has used all those parts of my story so that I can see 
his true love for me, love myself, and hopefully love others also. Thank you. Can you see it takes great courage? Thank you, Kelly. We play a role in our own quickenings. Life provides the crisis, unfortunately. God ushers in the invitation, and then we have a decision about what we'll do with that and what process we'll engage in with him for him to grow us up. Is God inviting you into a quickening this morning? Are you willing to step into that hard, challenging, deep place to meet with him there? There is good and depth and wonder in those opportunities to meet him in those dark places when our heart is listening and attuned to his spirit. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, you are good to us. We acknowledge that we are nervous and frightened people, that we would prefer that life be comfortable, smooth. And yet, it is in the deep, dark, and difficult places that you um, refine us. So with what courage we can muster, we say to you, we want to be quickened. We want you to have your way with us. We want to be transformed more and more into the likeness of your son. We want to have all that you have for us. Give us strength, give us insight, so that we hear your voice when you call, that we accept the invitation to move into those places and meet you in the dark spots. We love you, Father. We ask to be quickened. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we just give Byron a hand? This, uh, this work is, is not easy. This is hard work. As a matter of fact, I, I, I don't know if I've heard the church. If you can hear reflection, I'm sure I heard it today. Uh, just so thinking and pondering about their own story and who they are. But this is the stuff that, that, that matters. This is the stuff that, that takes your everyday casual relationship with each other and with God to, uh, to a different place. And it allows you to see other people and the way they walk out their stories in a different light. And it makes you stronger ministers of the gospel. And for that, I am grateful that you're so willing to sit in these heavy places. Sometimes it's fun to come to church and just laugh and, and, and celebrate all the good things. But, but without the, the difficult things, um, I don't think that laughter would be nearly as rich or, or authentic. So uh, thank you, Byron, for coaching us. And also, lastly, before I dismiss you guys, I want to appreciate Kelly Backstrom. Um, to be that vulnerable and to walk up here and share uh, kind of kind of a side of your story that, that, that is, is just yours. 
um, takes great courage. And so uh, what a wonderful example. I hope we can hear more from him on our stage as him and Sam uh, attend our church now. And so uh, we were just super blessed. So can we just appreciate Kelly? And uh, yeah. Yeah, thank you guys for coming. Have a great week. And uh, we'll see you next Sunday. I'll be back. And uh, we're going to continue on in our series, The Quickening. God bless.